Welcome to the Finding the Magic podcast, where books come alive. I'm Tricia Copeland, a fiction author and host of this show. If you love books, finding great reads, and hearing about the story behind the story directly from the authors, this is the place for you. Whether you like fantasy, science fiction, dystopian, or romance titles, I think you'll find something to love in my playlist. Listen in to discover something magical about a book or two today. Hi, Alma. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you tonight. I am so impressed with your website and so excited to hear about all your books. First, Alma is the Duchess of Fantasy. Is that correct? Am I saying that correctly? Yep. And it's a real thing. Um, just very briefly, back in the early uh, medieval times, an ancestor of mine distinguished himself at a famous medieval battle, um, came limping back home, which gave my, the entire family their surname because my, my maiden name translates um, as the son of the gimp. Um, and he came back um, wounded, but rewarded with a dukedom. The dukedom is long since lost in the, in the mists of medieval times, but I do still have a coat of arms and I'm the lineal descendant of that family. So I'm a real duchess. That is super neat and super interesting. I can't say I can trace my heritage back to a duke, but that's very neat. So I'm glad you come by it honestly, but even if you didn't come by it by heritage, <laughs> I think we could still call you that because what you have over 20 fantasy books published? I have more than 22 books published. Most of them are fantasy, but not all. Okay. And today we're going to focus on three of them because um, we want to keep our listeners a little bit focused and maybe your best work. So the first book we wanted to talk about was The Second Star. The second star is my first and possibly the only real science fiction novel that I ever wrote. Um, and, and so far in its career, it was published in the summer of 2020. And so far in its career, it's been a finalist in the Imagine Awards and it's been a finalist in the Washington State Book Awards, okay. which uh, for a genre book is, uh, is fairly um, high praise because they tend to go for the fairly more literary kind of type. So you might even call it a literary science fiction novel. Some reviewers have called it a psychological thriller. Um, it, it basically covers a lot of bases. And um, for me, it was uh, one of those books that came to me as a line when I woke up from a deep sleep one morning and I just kind of noodled that, noodled that, noodled that. And it just kept on growing like barnacles on a ship bow. And before I knew where I was, I had 127,000 words of novel without even taking a deep enough breath to think about it. And it was good stuff. <laughs> so um, it, it just came very, very organically. It just dreamed itself quite literally into being. That's amazing. I can't even imagine just sitting down and write. I'm have to plan out my books a little bit and know where they're going and then fill in the meat on the middle, I guess. 
I have never been a plotter. I have never been a planner. Um, I keep on telling people that the way I write is that I stick a story seed into the ground and I don't know myself what's going to grow a cabbage or a redwood until I see the first leaf come out. Um, I'm that organic. And as far as that particular way of writing is concerned, Second Star was a case in point. That was the most incredibly organic piece of writing that you could possibly think of. And did you start with an idea for a plot or did you start with an idea for a character? I started with a sentence and the sentence was the soul is like a starfish. And um, the idea there was that if you cut off a starfish foot, it kind of grows back. Um, and it just got deepened um, into a different um, set of ideas. And what eventually came out of it was, and I will read you just the first few lines of the blurb of this thing. The parada had been lost for almost 200 years before they, they recovered the ship, drifting in Stygian interstellar darkness and brought her home again. But that was not the miracle. The miracle was that the crew was still alive. That was also the problem. Six people went out to the stars, more than 70 came back. What I'm talking about is a fractured personality. They came back, six people came back uh, having aged only about two and a half years in those 200 years that they were away, but they came back totally broken. They came back as a conglomeration of personalities rather than a single person. And the I, am is getting, I am getting chill bumps just listening to you read the premise of that story so I can understand why so many people would be drawn to that book. The novel is basically um, revolves around the fact that these people who are technically the heroes of the revolution, they were the first people that the human polity sent out to space, but they came back broken. And now it's a question of figuring out whether that was just a you know, bad luck or whether there was something out there that would break human minds. And when they came back, um, they couldn't just bring them back and let them loose in, into the world because they didn't know whether they were safe to do that with. So they basically sequestered them deep and deep underground and brought in a psychologist and, um, and other people, including a priest, to figure out what the matter was with them and whether they could fix it. Um, if there was anything the matter with them. And the psychologist went native. Interesting. So the book kind of starts when the people come home then. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I have interviewed so many authors with them in the past two days. I've had like five interviews yesterday and six interviews today. And my to be read pile just keeps piling up. So I'm going to mark that one down as well. <laughs> Such an amazing premise for a book. The second book you wanted to talk about was your fractured fairy tales. Yeah, fractured fairy tales was a long time coming. Um, I, the first published book that I, I ever published was a collection of three very Oscar Wildean fairy tales that got picked up by an educational publisher in the UK and the generation of British school children hate me because the back of the book had the usual what did the author mean by this questions um, 
but I wrote these three original fairy tales in a sense and, and that that is how I started out publishing stuff, stuff in general um, and then I kept on writing things that had fairy tale aspects to them um, there was there's a, there's a story that came out um, for uh, um, anthology years later that was a, a sort of take on Rumpelstiltskin which borderline which, which kind of was borderline horror um, there is there are a bunch of original fairy tales that are just fairy tale stories set in that kind of trope. Somebody once uh, challenged me to write a story about what would happen if you take the traditional, you know, the firstborn child promised to a witch in exchange for a favor, but what would happen if the same firstborn child was promised to two different witches at once? And so that that gave birth to uh, a sort of slightly long, longer novella length story um, about these two witches, a, a city witch and a country witch, who now had to share custody of this baby <laughs> and had to figure out what to deal with, how to deal with that. Um, and then there's um, stories like um, a couple of years back, I edited an anthology called Children of a Different Sky, which was for about and by refugees. And it was a charity anthology with um, proceeds from it going to refugee charities working with displaced human beings on this planet. That was something that I carried with me for a while. And at one point I just woke up at five o'clock in the morning with this idea in my brain, what would happen if your Disney princesses were refugees? Five o'clock in the morning, I was writing the story of Cinderella like you've never seen it before. Before I finished doing that, I had ideas for three other stories. That became a sort of story in four parts or four short stories you know, along a single theme um, about the four refugee princesses. And then you recognize them, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, uh, Little Mermaid and uh, Snow White. But they are not like anything that you've ever seen these princesses be like before. And these are harrowing things. These, these, these are not children's fairy tales. You don't pick this book up and take your seven-year-old to bed and say, here, lie down and I'll read you a nice story. They're not nice stories. <laughs> they are, they're a box of very dark chocolate. Those sound extremely intriguing. Would they even be considered young adult or are they, the subject matter is more adult? like a 13 plus or does well, it need to be 18 plus if you are if you are if you are someone like me who was reading purely adult books by the time i was eight then it's a it's that kind of a reader but i probably wouldn't throw this at uh, a young reader and by that i mean a young in the mind reader there is a lot to unpack in some of these stories. Sounds like they have a lot of good themes as well. One of the things that, that was written specifically for this book, or particularly for this book, as in it's an original story for this book, was um, a sort of retelling of a story that, again, it's going to be instantly recognizable what it is. If you have ever read the original Little Match Girl, it's the kind of thing that will take out your heart and rip it out and let it lie in front of you while it's still beating. It's a hard story. It's a hard story. 
but I read that when I was a kid and it never left me, just never left me. It was always there with me. And right now in this day and age, again, with the refugee system, uh, the refugee problem being part of the system, um, there, there are so many people running from something. And um, in this day and age, in this country, we have the camp, or we had, I don't know if they're still there probably, uh, they had the camps of the displaced children on the borders. And my little matchstick girl became a little glow stick girl who ran from South America and who found Christmas locked up in a cage on a border with five glow sticks, which showed her memories of her, of her life um, before she got taken like and as in the original um, story it was her grandmother who finally came for the little match girl and took her away from this horrible life that she was tried the the sort of this sort of story it just mapped onto reality so well i think that is part of the power of the fairy tale because they are all true in one sense they are all fundamentally true and if you read anything like a fairy story, you're going to look past the flesh on the story and you're going to look at the bones and the bones are going to be recognizable. Right, it's someone's human experience, um, a tragic human experience. I think the, um, the original fairy tale, which I grew up on, as in not the Disney saccharine versions, my Little Mermaid was the original Hans Christian Andersen story, which is a lot darker than the singing uh, crustaceans in Ariel um, in The Little Mermaid that they put together. There are no singing lobsters in the original uh, Little Mermaid. It, again, it, it's, a, it's a hard story. Hans Christian Andersen taught me a lot about what it means to be human. And I think that part of the reason that I write short, that I write fairy tales or short stories is because that is something that's become part of my fabric. It definitely comes through as very, how, how do I say it, forceful. And it, it comes through as you're talking about it too, is this is just your passion in your life. There's another book that you wanted to talk about called The Change of Days, and it's a very special book this year. Changer of Days. Changer of Days, sorry. Changer of Days, uh, Changer of Days was a book which I uh, wrote while I was still pursuing my master's degree in molecular biology. So while there were science experiments cooking over here, I was sitting in the corner over there um, in a very cluttered desk writing this pure high fantasy novel. Uh, and my supervisor knew, but didn't care. Um, but I, I kind of finished that thing. It was a quarter million words worth of a secondary world that was astonishing. Um, it just, there was just some, there was aspects of this thing that were as real to me as you and I are real to me now. Um, and when I first, put this together, it was 246,000 words. And I was a very green writer with no track record and no connections. And I took this to a publisher and the publisher liked it, but he looked at it and kind of went, yeah, split this puppy up. So what happened was that they eventually published it as a duology, like in two books. 
what that meant was that they split it up in the middle and the first book now ended up in a howling cliffhanger which never which was never supposed to happen that way you were supposed to go on to the next chapter and not the next book and what happened then is that the publisher the u.s publisher of this uh, duology allowed the second book the second half of the book to go out of print which meant that the now the, the only thing out there now is the first half of the book which ends on that howling cliffhanger and it took me a long time to get all those pieces back together again and i finally managed to get all the, the, the sort of disparate bits that were floating out there in the ether and finally published this book as it should have been published in the first place as a single volume in a 20th anniversary edition single volume of this story and yeah um i had to deal with a few minor um, issues here and there i mean this thing was written 20 odd years ago but the bones of this story still hang together so wonderfully well that having wor working on it all these years later it remains to be a pleasant astonishment as to how strong this book was um in in to begin with that's amazing. I can't, I, my longest book is 110,000 words. I can't imagine having one story. I have at least, I have at least, um, I have at least three novels, possibly four novels, I'm trying to think now, that are 200,000 plus words. Um, I tend to write long. Um, which is why the, my, my short stories are well, I'm not going to say rare because I do write them, but they are not, um, they don't come easy to me. It comes a lot easier to me to write 200,000 words than it does to write a short story. Interesting. Because Some I really people have would to like with a short story be so fascinated with that. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting that you study molecular biology. My background is microbiology. Really? Yes. I started out as a researcher and it's funny, I, I sometimes wondered how I got from being a scientific researcher to being a fantasy writer. And then I realized what I loved about the research was more of the creative aspect of like, how do you figure out the answer to the problem? Not necessarily, it was great to figure out the answer to the problem. It was, what I loved is, how to formulate the you know the experiment or how to you know how to figure out the answer not so much as the answer so that was interesting to me when i kind of made that one of my professors was fond of saying that our research was going along nicely at the usual rate of knots we do not know what happened and we do not know why <laughs> Um, it, it was one of those things when it comes to things like chemistry um there it's it's simple there's a, a chemical a and a chemical b and they react together in a certain way and that is an empirical kind of thing they will do that every time in exactly the same way but when it comes to something biological like microbiology like molecular biology it's not just you it's the bugs it's the bacteria they're doing their own damn thing and they are sometimes going to go away and do whatever they want to without asking for your permission. I remember one time my, my lab mate uh, religiously performed the same experiment 20 times and he put the 
the petri dishes in a 37 degree incubator and the next morning come up and nothing would happen. And then one day he forgot and he left these petri dishes out on his bench at room temperature. And when he came back, the thing that he was looking for had expressed. It wanted room temperature. It did not want 37 degrees. But you know, how would you know? <laughs> it took him two months to figure that out and then it was an accident. Yeah, yeah, I remember things like that. It was actually my professor that taught me to write and helped me learn to like to write. I first learned to like technical writing before I ever liked fiction writing. So that was kind of interesting for me as well. How did you transition from being a researcher to being a fiction author? Well, several things. Um, Several things conspired to push me there. One was that um, after I finished my master's degree, I um, did a, a sort of summer internship in a pathology lab, which was ruled by a, a sort of colleague of mine, which I'd met along the way. So he gave me a summer job to deal with that. And one of the first things that I had to do is they handed me a syringe of some thick yellow goop and they told me to go into the animal room and pick out a bunny rabbit and inject the bunny rabbit with this thing and I went in there and I took this rabbit and it sat in my hand and it looked at me with a complete trust and I put the rabbit back in the cage and I put the syringe down and I went and I cried for an hour I could not do this I could not do this it was just not in me to deal with things like this so that was number one number two was uh, this was back in South Africa, and uh, I was doing this at a point where um, research funding was at a premium because we were at the cusp of transitioning into the new South Africa, and so many more things needed money that that was usually flung at blue sky research that things just kept on drying up, and I just happened to be one of those things that dried up, so I went sideways. And I started working as an editor for uh, an allergy society news kind of uh, publication. Um, my, my title was, pub, was production editor, but basically I was general dog's body and total factorum. I did everything. I, I commissioned articles, I edited them, I put the thing together. I did everything for that publication. So that was my baby for a couple of years. And then I moved to New Zealand and I got a and I got a job um, writing for a pharmaceutical company, and from there I got another job that was um, for a, a long couple of stint of years. I was working as a, an ed in-house editor for an educational publisher in in Auckland before they moved uh, lock, stock, and barrel the entire operation to Australia. Then I was doing something with the University of, of Auckland. And then I moved to the states and I got married and I started writing full time. That is so, that's so cool. how that Yeah, it sounds like these stories do you, do they come to you in dreams or you just wake up with the idea? It sounds like that's what happens. Sometimes there there are lots of stories that I in some way, shape, or form dreamed into being. Um, and then I kind of noodle them into some sort of coherence when I wake up. There are times when I wake up with a scribbled line of, of handwriting next to my bed and I can one cannot read it and two, if I can read it, I cannot understand what on earth I was thinking. So there are, there are times when the dreams go sideways. 
Interesting. So you're sleep writing instead of sleep talking. <laughs> yes. You might call it that. You might call it that. Very neat. Well, you have tons of more books, and I want to point all of my listeners to your website, Alma. Alma, right? Sorry. Yeah. AlmaAlexander.org to see the whole list because I clicked on every book and I was ready to download all of them <laughs> for inspiration and entertainment. <laughs> One of my favorite questions to ask my authors is what you what? want your readers to take away from reading your books or what you want them to experience. It has long been my contention that fantasy is the best way to tell the truth because you can wrap it in layers of sponge sugar and sparkles and unicorns and dragons and this and that and the other thing. And yet you can wrap all of that around a hard kernel of pure, difficult, sometimes bitter truth that gets to be easier to swallow when it's sweetened by all this other stuff, maybe. And what I'm trying to get at is that I, I'm not trying to do allegory. I'm not trying to preach. I'm not trying to uh, you know, tell people what to think but maybe I'm trying to tell them a little bit about how to think and um, how to look at something that they may not have looked at before with a slightly different point of view, a slightly different pair of eyes and maybe go away having been entertained hopefully with the book, but having also learned something. I think that's very true and very, strong message. I listened to a podcast once that talked about why young people and teenagers should not read fantasy because it took them out of reality. And the podcaster was arguing and what I would have argued too, and what exactly what you were saying, it helps us deal with those real life issues in a way that feels safer. So if we talk about refugees or bullying or lots of other issues that come up for young people, teens, or even adults in our adult life that can be packaged in a way that is a little more manageable to think about and to watch those characters overcome their situation and find ways to find joy and exit that situation with a positive result hopefully. <laughs> I like happy endings, so that's sort of my mantra, but um, that doesn't always happen either, but yeah, so I think fantasy, as you said, is important in that way. Um, and as far as uh, happy endings are concerned, I was always wary of them, even as, as a very young child, because I wanted to know who's happy ending, what happened to the other people and what happened afterwards. And um, it's never quite as simple as that for me. Um, I don't think there is such a thing as a wholly happy ending without any ramifications because 
at some point, something else happens. Um, things don't just stop when you're feeling happy. Um, I'm not saying it's it's a it's a finite pie and you can't be happy unless someone else is unhappy. That's that's not it either. But the point is that often a happy ending requires things like compromise, which a lot of you know generic happy endings simply don't even look into. Um, if you take a look at some of the the really uh, sort of by the numbers romances, the kind where you get unit A and unit B and they um, they are either best friends or, or best enemies in the beginning and through um, events C, D and E, they kind of get together and they are each other's absolute soulmates, the end, happy ending. That has always failed to satisfy me. I need something bigger. I need something more real, and it doesn't get more real. It doesn't get realer than good fantasy. I completely agree with that. Yes, I, I um, oftentimes can't can't um, read those type of books. It takes takes me being a little tired to go back to those romances that are just mindless. So, but obviously, um, they're there are a lot of audience for that too and just kind of fantasy take me away sweet me oh, away yeah. i mean give me something i don't have to think about there's a reason my romance is yeah there's a reason my romance is the best-selling genre out there it's simply it's it's packaged happiness you, you get handed a slice of joy between the covers of a book and you lose yourself in in that and there is true love out there it's happened to somebody and it's you know it's just there is a kind of joy in that and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that yeah but i went through a stage of reading things like barbara cartland until i realized that i was reading the same book over and over <laughs> again with the characters having different names <laughs> and i mean i just i kind of went off at, a, at a, a side road and started looking for different things, things that, that meant something, something more complete to me. Well, it sounds like you've definitely created the, that in your books with your characters and your stories. So I have been told that I've been told that I shouldn't really let my characters take me by themselves in, in a dark alley because I won't come out of it alive because I put them through absolute hell when I write about them and I have uh, I have a particular character in Changer of Days who happens to be a sort of slightly secondary character who turns up because she is um, she's a necessary character to make certain things happen but she doesn't end well in the book. And uh, one of my readers in Australia um, was absolutely incandescently mad at me for that. And she basically started a, a sort of unofficial group of secondary characters have rights too. <laughs> That's awesome. But when your readers care that much about your characters, that means you have created amazing characters and amazing storylines. So, yeah. At least one other 
character in the same novel who started out, and I mean this quite literally, started out as a name, um, happened to be mentioned when they were discussing a certain war that was going on, and he just happened to be the name of the person who was commanding a certain faction of that war. And right now I'm contemplating writing his own book because he grew that much. He became that much of a real person. He just took over his own story and said, hey, I am as real as anything um, and I need my own book. Um, so maybe he's getting one. Um, I'm not oh, that's sure. Exciting. That happened to me it. as well. I had a character that was supposed to be a villain type character and he was supposed to be deceiving the main character and tricking her into um, coming into this evil witch's coven. And um, in the end, I couldn't make him the bad guy. <laughs> so he ended up, being, <laughs> well, I'm giving some stuff away, but anyway, he ends up being a good guy and then he got his own book as well. So um, yeah, that happened to me. <laughs> Well, the thing you. about specifically specifically villains is that they're so much fun to write because you you certainly in some ways you get the the, the safety wheel removed and, and you are you are allowed to make them uh, do things that your protagonist would never be permitted to do because well protagonists don't but your your villains don't have that kind of uh, those kind of training wheels attached, and um, if you make them a real human being, as in Shades of Grey, as opposed to I got up this morning figuring out how bad I can be. Um, when I wrote another novel called Embers of Heaven, uh, which is a historical fantasy which has its roots in um, the Cultural Revolution era of China. And one of the characters is, shall we say, at least inspired by the young Mao. And he is not exactly an easy person, an easy character to make likable. I was going to say, yeah. So, so that was a bit of a challenge. That would be amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. Are your books available wide on Amazon and the other booksellers? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're okay. They're all over the place. Great. And we will have all your links in the description of the podcast as well and being uh, at your website, almaalexander.org, Duchess of Fantasy. And very rightly so, I have to say. Thank you. Thank you for being here and have a nice night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Finding the Magic podcast. I'm your host, author and podcaster, Tricia Copeland, and I love getting behind the scenes. If you like the podcast, Make sure to subscribe and stop in each week, discover new authors and books. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep finding the magic.